0: Good morning. This is a real pleasure to be here, and those of you that don't have bifocals will learn. (laughs) Would you open your Bibles with me to Isaiah, the Old Testament, chapter 44. Isaiah writes in the middle 700s B.C. to the early 600s B.C. to the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and in the first section of his book, he concentrates on the Assyrian threat to Israel. Whom shall Israel trust? Is the big question. Their own abilities and their pride, or the one true God, the God of Israel? In the second part of the book, Isaiah writes to uh, God's character and his intent to restore his people while they are still in Babylonian captivity. And we pick up his prophetic message, written in some of the most glorious poetry in the Hebrew language, in fact, in any language, as we begin in chapter 44, verse 1. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun whom I have chosen. And he continues in a similar vein until he gets to verse 9. And then Isaiah radically changes the tone, the tenor, and the message of his writing. In verse 9, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing. And he continues this argument in the same vein until he reaches verse 21 and then concludes in verses 21 through 23. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. We're going to go back through and develop each one of those verses as we look at what Isaiah has laid out. But this is a classic chapter in the Bible in which we see very starkly contrasted and laid out worship of God on one hand and worship of idols on the other hand. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray this morning that your Holy Spirit will knock down barriers in our hearts and allow your word to penetrate, to permeate, and to change us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I knew at 7 o'clock in the morning that it was going to be a bad day. It was a fall day in 1979, and I stood at the top of a rocky knob on the southern slopes of Mount St. Helens in southern Washington State, a few months before it blew its top and changed its appearance forever. I was assigned as a sector boss on a 4,000-acre and rapidly growing forest fire. And I don't know if you've ever been to the west side of the Cascades in Oregon and Washington, but the trees there are huge, four, six feet and larger in diameter, upwards of 200 feet tall, very, very thick, and where I stood was extremely steep. raid below me that morning were 170 men fighting that sector of the fire, and at 7 o'clock that morning, the fire blew up and started running up the mountain toward us. For the first time in my life, I could do nothing to stop that fire. And I realized that the idols, at that time I didn't recognize them as idols, but I knew that self-reliance and self-righteousness would not be in play today. And though I was not a believer at the time, I cried out, Lord, I know you're there. I don't know you, but please give me strength to lead on this fire because we're going to lose some men. I know what some of you may be thinking. We don't have any four-foot diameter, 200-foot tall trees in Waco, Texas. And you're right. But if you have placed your family... Ahead of your relationship with God. If you are struggling with addiction to alcohol, sex, drugs, pornography. If a certain grade point, a job, or a salary has become an obsession with you. If you have made yourself lord and master of the kingdom of self. If you belong to that exclusive group that Paul wrote about in Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, then this message is for you. God has proven in every page of his word that he is the one true God. And because he is the one true God, we must worship him alone. Isaiah now has laid out four points that we're going to look at this morning, showing why we must worship God alone. The first one is that He has chosen us. Look at verses 1 and 2. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen." He starts, but now, which means that we need to look back at what he talked about in the previous chapter. And there he concludes, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. He is prophesying and promising that Israel will receive God's wrath for their sin. But now, he says, but now, hear, O oh Jacob. It doesn't matter whatever sins have been committed in the past, national or individual, grace is available now. Now, to whom is God speaking? He's speaking to Israel. But if we look at the Bible in Romans chapter 11, the Apostle Paul tells us, he uses a metaphor of an olive tree, that we, as believers in Jesus Christ, have been ingrafted." They've taken the branches and grafted them in. So we receive the same sustenance, the same lifeblood that the nation of Israel receives. And so when he talks here about Israel, he is talking to us as well. Israel, as he writes this, a hundred years more or more down the road is in exile in Babylon. And their heads are hanging down. And this is a reminder that they have been chosen, that God still intends to use them as he had planned, which was to be a light and a draw to all the nations to come to the God of Israel. Fear not. You see, they think that God has rejected them, and he tells them to fear not. And he uses the term Jeshurun, which it's a poetic, intimate name, which means upright one. Despite their sin, he calls them upright ones, and it means that God still has them deep in his heart. The second reason why we must worship him alone is that he will bless us with his Holy Spirit. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. The coming exile raises questions of how Abraham's promise will come true. Remember, God talked to him in Genesis chapter 12. And he, one of the promises he made was that their offspring would be, his offspring would be as numerous as the sands in the ocean. And how is that going to take place when we're, when we're in exile? The offspring are assured God will pour out His Holy Spirit on them. But this not only refers to deliverance from Babylon and their captivity, but spiritual deliverance as well. For you see, divine intervention for Israel is the only thing that will save them. Some of you today may be in a spiritual desert. Uh, You may be thirsting for God and not finding Him. You may have lost the joy of reading the Bible. You may have stopped praying long ago. and, And you feel as though God has abandoned you. Do you feel sometimes as though you're not producing the fruit in your life that you are called to produce? And you're not as useful to this church or this community as you want to be? Well, Israel felt the same way and their god promises to do the impossible to pour out his spirit as water for a parched soul you know in wartime when things get tough in combat vital resupply is reduced to two items water and ammunition food and all the other stuff can wait you got to have water to live And to carry out your mission, you need ammunition. Now, if we are to be effective warriors for Jesus Christ, we have to have the same thing. We need the Holy Spirit who nourishes us with springs of living water that never go dry, and with His power, the sword of the Spirit, we read about in Ephesians chapter 6. His word, the sacraments, and prayer. Well, not only do we have those things as reasons why we must worship God alone. But thirdly, he will give us an identity. Look at verse 5. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. No longer will the God of Israel be laughed at among the nations people will be proud to be members of israel and i would ask you now today where is your identity both individually and as a congregation Uh, how does the story of redeemer waco fit into the grand biblical story of creation fall redemption consummation and are are you in a congregation where it's an honor to be a member you feel that? Jesus said in chapter 10 of John's gospel that he was the good shepherd who calls his sheep by name. Have you responded to his call as he calls you by name? Because he will give you an identity. He will tell his heavenly Father, this one belongs to me. Well, the fourth reason why we must worship the one true God and Him alone is that He is God, and He keeps His promises. Thus says the Lord, in verse 6, The King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. I am the first and the last he says where have we heard that before jesus uses it about himself in revelation it shows up four times no person or god can compete with israel's god whenever a prophet or a writer in the bible uses thus says the lord that is a flashing light a flag waving hey listen up and pay attention because this is important calls attention to the fact that he is the God of Israel, that he intends to redeem them, and more importantly, he is able to carry out his plan. He does not intend for Israel to be swallowed up in captivity, nor does he intend for us to be swallowed up in captivity or in bondage to idols. God issues a challenge here, Uh, It's very similar to Job chapter 38. You remember Job, where Job poured out his heart for many, many verses. And then God, in verse 38, does the talking, and he says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And then reinforces the fact that only he can predict the future and make it happen against seemingly impossible odds. In verse 8, he repeats the command, fear not. We need to hear that message, don't we? Because he tells Israel that he is a personal God, that he is not aloof, some deity that is out there impersonally watching things go, that he is in fact a shelter in a time of storm, and we can truly depend on him alone. Well, Isaiah now shifts gears, and the tone of his writing changes. He's told, God has told his people that he will deliver them from captivity. What evidence now, through the pen of Isaiah, can their little gods, small g, produce that they are supreme? Well, because God is the one true God, we must cease worshiping idols. First, we ought to define what an idol is. Listen to uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He defines an idol as anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. Anything that holds such a controlling position in my life that it moves and rouses and attracts so much of my time and attention, my energy, and my money. Stephen Charnock adds that each person acts as if God could not make him happy without the addition of something else. Idol worship, first point Isaiah makes, is unprofitable. Look at verses 9 through 11. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame... Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. In the face of God's supremacy, people who make idols are nothing. And think about it. How can we as created beings take something that has been created in itself and make it suddenly divine? It's unprofitable. God asks a rhetorical question, who makes something that is profitable for nothing? You're going to sense as it's growing as we go through this passage that Isaiah has written, an incredible sarcasm and irony He works and writes for the one true God. And he is contrasting that against all of us who make idols and showing with tremendous sarcasm. It's dripping by the time we get down to verse 20. Why? It's unprofitable. Witnesses to idols become nothing through their worship of gods, who are nothing. The craftsmen of idols are not divine, they're human. And they are destined to fail... And all the friends of idol-makers will be plunged into disgrace, shame, and terror when their idols fail. Well, secondly, Isaiah tells us that idol worship has limitations. Look at verse 12 through 14. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry. And his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man. With the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Isaiah here takes us backwards through the steps of constructing an idol, and he shows us just how ludicrous it is to think that creation of something transcendental from ordinary things can truly happen. Now, the blacksmith, strong though he is, and we have a picture of a blacksmith, someone who's really built well and hammers around a hot forge all day, but he cannot continue working without water and food. Can, can we? No, of course we can't. As we marvel at his ability to form metal, we know that he's human. Because Israel did not form God, there is no requirement or need for them to be weary. You see, idols have limitations. God does not. There's something else here as well. The idol maker feels driven to complete his work. He must finish his idol so that he can reach out to the God that it represents. And do you realize that Christianity is the only religion where the God reaches down to people? In every other religion in the world, people have to reach out and up to God. Only with one true God does he reach out for man, and not the reverse. Isaiah now moves to the carpenter, who, whose skill with tools produces something. And what is it that it produces? A figure of a man, with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. Does this not heighten in our minds the limitation of idols? Now, before a carpenter, A forester had to get involved. Now, here's where I get excited, because I'm a forester. Again, look at the limitations. He must plant seeds, which come from nature, and depend on rain and sun, also from nature, before they grow enough so that he can cut down a tree. One commentator I read said that this was an attempt to cast eternal reality into the shape of humanity. We have not progressed beyond that today. We will be God, and God will be us. The third point that Isaiah makes is that idol worship is foolish. Look at verses 15 through 17. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. he, He now hammers home the final irony. How can a piece of wood that warms people and cooks their food suddenly now become something that demands human worship and offers deliverance to its worshipers? Now, friends, if this sounds simplistic, and it sounds like something that was written 2,700 years ago and it has no relevance today, we miss how complex and sophisticated idolatry really is. Idols are not just blocks of wood in pagan jungle rituals. They have a home in educated 21st century hearts and minds. And listen to the fourth reason we must cease worshiping idols. Because idol worship and slaves. Look at verses 18 through 20. They know not... "'Nor do they discern, for He has shut their eyes, "'so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. "'No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, "'Half of it I burned in the fire. "'I also baked bread on its coals. "'I roasted meat and have eaten. "'And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? "'Shall I fall down before a block of wood? "'He feeds on ashes.' A deluded heart has led him astray and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? He has shut their eyes. The Hebrew verb here is much more complex and involved. It's besmeared. So it's like taking a big scoop of black automotive grease and smearing it over your eyes. That's a little bit more serious than just closing your eyes. Some translations have the He capitalized. He has shut their eyes, meaning God has shut their eyes. I think in context it refers to the God the idols represent, small g. But in either case, God is ultimately behind it, and the result is the same. There is a loss of knowledge and a loss of discernment. Now, Tim Keller... Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, has written the best treatment of idols that I've ever read in his study of Galatians, and he points out three effects of idolatry. And the first of these is distorted thinking. False gods are earthbound, and yet they convince me that I receive blessings and prosperity only from objects or people. The second thing that uh, idols bring to me as emotional bondage idols create over desires and inordinate longings in a word lust which in our language we talk and we think immediately sexual things but this is across the board inordinate longings or desires for anything and finally it is the reason we sin under our sins are idolatrous desires it is no accident that the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments deal with idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no graven images and fall down to them. We cannot break commandments three through ten without first breaking the first two commandments. Think about that. When we get serious about escaping the slavery of idolatry, this works righteousness that keeps us chained to our idol The first thing to do is to ask God for help. And Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 should be our opening prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. We first have to identify our idols before we can get rid of them. Next, we need to be careful to avoid what Keller calls either the moralizing approach, which says, your problem is that you're doing wrong. Repent. But that doesn't go deep enough. It needs to get to the why. Why we are behaving the way we are behaving. And he says we should also avoid the other extreme of what he calls psychologizing, which says, your problem is that you don't see God loves you just as you are. Rejoice that also denies the underlying question what he says we must do is take the gospel approach that tells us that our problem is that we are looking to something or someone beside jesus christ for our happiness and our fulfillment so it's a case of repent and rejoice only when we identify the value or the values that we deem more important in our lives than God himself and confess it to Jesus Christ and accept his healing, will we be free from the enslaving nature of idolatry. And a wrong choice here is much more than a simple mistake because our lives depend on it. There is only one God, and unless that idol in my hand is divine, I have placed my destiny on a block of wood. We idolaters feed on ashes the remains of a block of wood. Where this morning have you placed your destiny? Are you feeding on ashes? Or are you feeling on feeding on the living word of the living God in the presence of Jesus Christ? Have you placed your faith and trust upon Him and Him alone for eternal salvation. If you have not, and you're struggling with sin, struggling with idols, please come up after the service and let's talk about that and show you how you can have the assurance that you are in the palm of the one true God's hand. Well, Isaiah, as we conclude, has clearly contrasted worship of God and worship of idols. To a nation in captivity, in Babylon, in slavery, he now resolves the tension between these two polar opposites. Look at verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. The prophet calls on Israel to remember who God is, and what he's done, and these things he talks about here probably refer to all the evidence that he's just presented that no idol can deliver them. Only God can redeem. And God has made Israel his servant. Now in Hebrew, the word servant can cover a wide span, all the way from someone in abject slavery, all the way to someone who has a place of honor and has been given a special mission. And that's the usage here. Israel has been given a place of honor and a special mission. Well, on that fire line back in Washington State in 1979, God resolved the tension in my life between worshiping Him and the idols of self-righteousness and self-reliance. And it was a bad day. I had retardant bombers, I had helicopters with big water buckets, and a whole lot of men... They're all calling me on the radio, and for two days, they were all calling me at the same time. Uh, Firefighting will put excitement back in your life. But at the end of two days, you know what happened? Not one person had been injured, much less killed. And at the end of ten days, when I left that fire and went back home, I knew that something had changed in my life. I placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ for eternal life. And I felt at that point that God wanted me back in the army. Uh, He orchestrated that after a six-year break in service. And here I am today. And just as God promised that He would not forget Israel, so He does not forget us. In our sin, we forget God. But look at verse 22 to see His response to our idol worship. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. The apostle Paul tells us in Romans 5, verse 8 that God demonstrates, present tense, His love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Well, there was a Paul Harvey rest of the story moment Uh, 14 years later in 1993 uh, the army sent me back to Washington State to Fort Lewis Washington and uh, I had a very dangerous mission if you think fighting forest fires will put excitement back in your life wait till you try what I had to do that whole summer teach college ROTC students how to throw hand grenades (laughs) well one weekend I needed a break And I drove up to the mountain where I had been on that fire and to the exact spot where I had cried out to God. The contrast could not have been more dramatic. Uh, in, In place of chaos, there was absolute peace. In place of deafening noise, this time there was deafening silence. In place of fire and wind and choking smoke, this time there were ethereal Wisps of cloud and fog barely moving in the quiet. Now, the only thing that marred this otherworldly experience was a deep awareness of sin in my life. But God says that He has wiped away our sin, sin that hangs heavy like a cloud, and we sense that it blocks our communion with our Heavenly Father. Return to me, He says, for I have redeemed you a promise from a God who keeps His promises. He responds to Israel's deepest need, forgiveness for their sins which led to the exile in the first place. And He calls out to us to respond in faith as He cuts through the chains of idolatry that binds and enslaves us and instead binds us to Him with holy golden cords of love. Isaiah concludes with verse 23. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. When we repent of our idols, a billion volts of God power reduces these pathetic, helpless things that we place on the place of honor in our hearts and turns them into a pile of ashes. Some commentators have described what the prophets see as a series of mountain peaks Uh, representing what God will do in the future. And and the prophet cannot see into the valleys because there's like a a, a cloud layer. But he can see these events. He just can't see the times associated with them. And the only problem is that Isaiah does not see the time between the events, but he he knows they are coming. He knows that there will be a servant who does not fail to live up to God's desires for Israel. There will be a servant who will gather the tribes and will become salvation to the ends of the earth. There will be a servant who will bear the sins of many as a lamb and yet will prosper and justify many. He will be the ideal Israel over against the actual Israel, and we know Him as Jesus Christ, the Messiah. I felt a strong urge to pray on that mountain where 14 years earlier I had prayed in desperation. And and as I prayed, shafts of sunlight began to penetrate this fog and cloud and it illuminated a brilliant green, brand new forest where before only death and destruction had reigned. And I looked up right in front of me was a single tree and it was a noble fir any of you been out there noble fir is probably the most majestic beautiful tree in the pacific northwest and they say that you can take the forester out of the woods but you can't take the woods out of the forester so i started counting the layers of branches add three for the time when it was in the seedling stage you know how old that tree was 14 years old. After an example of wooden idols going up in smoke, and you know, I needed an example on a big scale, and I got it. He provided a symbol of new life and a changed heart. Now the form and the substance and the circumstances will be unique for each person, but the God who has chosen us, the God who has given us an identity, the God who has showered his Holy Spirit upon us, the God who keeps his promises, will be true to his words. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Pray with me. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word, which instructs us, which convicts us, which challenges us, and which transmits Your love to us. Give us courage. Give us Your strength to identify and get rid of our idols with Your holy power, so that we may worship You, the one true God. Through Your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.